Welcome to episode 144 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever talking about our passion for Linux. And I'm Michael. With me today are the Klingon warriors of Linux, Noah, Ryan, and Wendell. So first up, uh, Noah, what's been new in your world? Live long and use Linux. Things have been good. We uh, we started recording episode two of the School of Hard Knocks. It's going to focus on marriage and relationships. So we've got a number of different people that are going to come on, a number of different couples, everything from couples that have just gotten together to couples that have been together for a long time to alternative relationship couples to alternative relationships in general. All of that stuff, we're going to cover it. Uh, we're just trying to learn about people's lives. So it's going to be absolutely fantastic. A ton of it takes like way more work than I thought it was going to be. But it's very, very rewarding. And to watch the amount of people that have downloaded it and, and left comments and sent in feedback saying that they appreciate it really tells us that we're working in the right direction. So I appreciate everybody from the Destination Linux family that's checked out that show. You can find it at schoolhardknocks.show. But yeah, it's it's been pretty fun. And that's what I've been up to this week. Well, that's not everything you've been up to this week. Cause... No, I also fixed it. I also hobbled together my laptop as a, you know, stand-in broadcast machine with a Thunderbolt dock, uh, you know, in 25 minutes. So that's the thing that I've done. Because you had a machine die, but you're going to fix that maybe by going Team Red? No, not that? maybe. It will. It's going to get... Sw- nice. it's, the motherboard's nice. sitting over there. Yeah, I just got to get it put together and, you know, RAM. And it happens. So right before okay. the show, your Power machine supply. crashed. Last week, right before the show, Michael's machine crashed. But technology. So if anybody wants to donate four new machines... Um, <laughs> Uh, so, Ryan, how's your week been? So, my week's been interesting with technology as well. I uh, wanted to show off the power of the PCIe for tech and my machine. And so, I spent the money that I've been kind of hesitating to to get one of these PCIe for MP600 drives from Corsair. So, The idea being that it connects directly to the motherboard. It's going to be twice as fast as PCIe 3, and we're going to have a great time. This is going to be my video for the week. So I get the drive. I go through the painstaking process on the MSI motherboard of removing a panel, removing the video card, then removing a panel to get to the NVMe M2 slots and plug it in. And after lots of wasted moments trying to diagnose is it a motherboard is it a bio setting is it what i realized that uh the drive was doa dead on arrival so much like both of you i've had my fill of tech issues this week Uh, but i did find back when i switched to this machine if you remember the ryzen third gens had an issue in linux with system d so at that point when I was switching, I had an old NVMe drive that I had in the machine that I had taken out and it had Arch on it and had replaced it with one of the well, Pop! OS actually at the time because I was one of the only operating systems that had fixed that system D issue and I'd never put it back in my machine. Well, since I had all the panels off of this MSI board, I stuck that back in, it booted fine, worked perfectly, was able to recover Arch on that machine. Um, well. That's not really true. Grub didn't work um, on the t- on the drive, so I had to fix that. Um, and I went to the Arch Wiki to figure out how to fix Grub in there. Got completely lost. Could not figure out what they were trying to explain in repairing the Grub. Found an old article on Antergos Wiki 
that gave me the exact steps I needed to take, which made a lot more sense of how to shroot into the drive, fix grub, and boom, I was up and running in that old drive with arches when I'm running right now. So there was some light at the end of the tunnel, but not without some pain. I've, I've had my own issues recently, and uh, uh, but what I'm happy to say is that we've, actu- we've actually had a new guest host for this week, and hopefully he hasn't had any technical issues this week. So Wendell, how, how's your week been? It's been interesting. Uh, I was trying to think. I don't know. There's. I mean, it's it's pretty much status quo here. But uh, I got a 128 core Threadripper machine put together. Nice. Threads. 256 gigs of memory, which feels a lot like four gigs of memory on like any other normal computer. Like, <laughs> uh, it's the consolation prize amount of RAM. It's only 256 gig. Should it be at least a half a terabyte? Maybe a terabyte. I mean, that's that's what you think, <laughs> right? So. And the the other thing that I did this week is I'm prepping a um, uh, socket 3647 system. That's the Intel Xeon socket, but also the W3175. I've been helping some some members of our community that had splurged and bought like the $5,000 of motherboard and processor. Uh, but they had some problems with their motherboard. So I was doing board level troubleshooting. And it turns out, I think that there's a design flaw in one of those uh, enthusiast motherboards. I'm going to do a video on that. It'll probably be out in a couple of weeks. But hmm. I figured out what the problem is, and it requires soldering. So that's fun. Ooh, yeah. Nice. That's, that's, that's one of those problems you don't want to have. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's one of those problems that, as a computer manufacturer, you really don't want to have. Because it's like, oh, no firmware is going to fix this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thanks again for joining for the show. Uh, and for those who are wondering, uh, Zeb is not available to be at this, the, on the show this week because he is at OGCamp. And we're going to he's already posted a lot of videos about like his experience there. And we're going to talk to him about, about OGCamp next week. So be sure to, uh, you know, watch the show then. And well, uh, before yeah. we move on, Michael, uh, what have you been up to this week? And have you managed to fix all of the crashing and fun of last week? Well, actually, yes, I have been up to a lot of things, mostly trying to fix the headache that I had last week. Uh, For those who are not aware, before we were doing the show last week for about two hours, troubleshooting for about two hours, trying to solve some problems with my system crashing, my connection dropping most a lot of the times. And I solved pretty much everything, but the computer had some pretty big issues in terms of like the... Uh, the system would crash and it wouldn't, it would be, you know, periodically, it might last five minutes, it might last 20 minutes, but it would put the point where I just had to replace the drive. And it seems like the drive, it was a drive failure rather than a distro failure or something. But um, I still need to do some testing to find out if it was a drive failure or not. Uh, but in the meantime, I decided to uh, set up the uh, multiple different systems to test out things and uh, but also at the same time create a production machine which I admittedly probably should have already had in any way for like a fallback and uh, so with the uh, this particular system now I'm running is the production machine which is on the uh, the stable and always great Kubuntu. Wow so you went back from Arch to Kubuntu. For production that can guarantee it will work Kubuntu. Wow there you go. There we go. All right. And also, I have to I'm, I'm I have to ask: Have you had any audio issues? Because that's the one thing that I struggle with using Kubuntu in production is the audio subsystem is just there's a lot of levers and knobs, and that's great when for like desktop stuff. But when you want it to do the same thing every single time, no matter what, it seems like they get all kitty wonker. Well, I mean, uh, for me, the 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 audio stuff is just like sometimes I'll have weird configurations, like the application will have the wrong uh, the wrong device. 
And yeah, that stuff. Yeah, that that's the thing that I've seen. But the really the everything else is 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 consistent. Like the way you put your windows, where you lay out everything, and that's one of the reasons why I I'm, I'm a big fan of plasma because everything all of that stuff is consistent. So I don't have to worry about that. But uh, I actually can't really tell. So I'll let you know next week because this is the first time I've used a production machine. So I've, all the tweaks that I did today weren't already set. So I don't really, I, don't, I can't really give you a guarantee whether everything was set in the next time. So next but week, it I seems unfair. You. You've bailed on Arch when the issue was a hardware issue. Yeah, but the also the reason is okay. To be fair, one of the reasons I'm using Kubuntu is not necessarily just because Kubuntu is Ubuntu based and it's easy to go. It's also because Kubuntu is the best Plasma by default out of the box. Okay, yeah, so, that makes sense. Setting up Arch. You know, you know how people say like there's so much effort in setting up arch and you know, like configurations and all that stuff. Oh yeah, you gotta do everything yourself. Right. So plasma is basically the same way that you have to configure everything yourself and set up all this stuff. And there's so many like you know different levers and knobs, as Noah was saying, that I don't want to do that. And Kubuntu allows me not have to do that. So I get the the benefit of having a production machine. I get a system that I don't have to deal with that, and a plasma DE that I don't have to deal with that. So. That's why I went Kubuntu over every all the other Plasma options. You could become a grown-up and utilize Arch and XFCE, and then you don't have to worry about all that problem. <laughs> grown-up, uh, incorrect choices, you know, whatever. You know, here, potato, <laughs> tomato, tomato, whatever. Speaking of which, though, Wendell, what distro do you run right um, now, or running right now? Mostly Fedora, but um, in the lab, I've got a test system that's running Manjaro for testing Linux gaming stuff, and I've been really happy with that. Especially around like, so the 5700 XT launched and you kind of need a new kernel for that. And then you kind of have the Mesa dependency oh, yeah. for that. It's a little bit of a mess. And uh, historically, like Pop! OS has been on top of like the gaming side of things. They really yeah. must have somebody that's just like playing games all day, but is also probably <laughs> miserable from the amount of work that they're having to do. Um, and uh, they've been keeping up pretty good. A little rough around the edges on the 5700 XT side, but Manjaro has been really good. The installer has been the trickiest thing on um, Manjaro, I think, because like you can install Manjaro on another machine, update it, and then install the 5700 XT, and it's it's basically fine. This is sounds like a terrible experience, but actually, for like a new GPU, it has been shockingly good compared to things that happened in the past. I mean, I'm thinking about like when the original original GPUs launched and, and that kind of thing. But, but my daily workhorse is basically Fedora. Um, nice. A little bit of... Little You're bit a smart of, guy. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> I, there are other machines in the building that are running uh, Ubuntu and Pop! OS and the one Manjaro machine that I'm continually impressed with, so... But really, what we need is to trust Red Hat. Is what I'm hearing. We need Insanity. I don't know the whole like 32 bit thing. We'll see how that works out for them. I don't know. Well, I think the 32 bit they're keeping is, the important stuff. Yeah, they're doing. They're not. They're not going the Ubuntu route or the, uh, the route Ubuntu almost went. Right. Exactly. I'm also really excited about the changes in kernel 5.4 that are going to make things a little easier on people that are going the uh, like Proton Lutris route. Um, I have not tested that yet. So I don't know what what exactly that opens up, but that's a whole other ball of wax where it's like, oh yeah, look at this. I'm just I'm basically just running off the master branch now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So do you have to do anything special with uh, getting stuff supported in Fedora with like the Mesa drivers? Because they do roll the kernel, but they don't roll the Mesa drivers. Do you have to do anything like that, or you just? Yeah, it's you 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 pretty much 
it's almost a manual process. Like the package maintainers are not really, uh, are not really doing anything like super special for you. Um, there are a couple of people that are working toward trying to keep all of that stuff in sync but mm-hmm. because it's different people on different projects. They're not always working in sync. So you can get yourself into an impossible situation. So you have to like roll back a package to a previous version because there's an update for this, but there's not an update for that. And the kernel part of it is probably actually the easiest part because you can even roll your own kernel super easy in Fedora, even with mm-hmm. all of Fedora's patches. Like you can just do the, the, the build the kernel the Fedora way, but update uh, the kernel yourself. And 99% of the time, the patches are going to apply cleanly. So the kernel's not really a big deal. But then bringing in Mesa and sometimes even like the firmware is out of sync. So you got to go like manually get the firmware that this version of Mesa is expecting to be able to use. And it's not, it's, it's, it's not an interesting new. problem that they're going to have to fix in the distros. I, I foresee anyways, because, you know, it's not just an AMD issue. It's an Intel issue, especially next year when they launch their um, GPU line that they're, they're supposed to come out with. They're going to be rolling in the Mesa drivers as well. So what are we just going to be dealing with these type of issues then as well in all these distros? It's something that's got to be figured out. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, maybe we need a czar that's in charge of all that. That seems to like under the hood, that seems to be what the pop OS people are doing is like yeah. that, the one guy is just spinning the plates from like the five or six different dependent packages to try to make sure that the experience is basically good. Coordinate with valve and the Lutris and proton teams and just sort of, get everybody on the same mailing list and manage it kind of from the top down is probably what's going to have to happen. I don't know if that's actually what's going on under the hood, but it seems like that may be what we're missing right now. Agreed. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimizing, managing, and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You can get access to this, plus their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month, or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour, and that's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software languages and frameworks. And the cloud-agnostic part is very important because there's often times where I'll need to find a, a solution and go to DigitalOcean, and they have the solution right there. And it has, and it's even like a desktop-related thing, not even related, necessarily related yep. to the cloud anyway. So you can get started on DigitalOcean for one month for free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash dl. Again, you can get started on with, with that $50 credit by going to do.co slash DL. And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. Kyle writes in and says, hey, guys, I was listening to y'all talk about the new kernels and how people on stable releases will have to wait for those benefits. And I felt like my situation was relevant a few months ago. While we were cleaning up a few things at work, my boss let me take an old HP tower home to keep. It was running <laughs> Windows 2000. Gross. But naturally, that just wouldn't do. So I would hope so. Even if you're a Windows user, I hope that wouldn't do. <laughs> so I decided to reach out and try CentOS. And the latest version at the time was 7.6. While trying to install it, it kept crashing, give me an error related to the X server. So I decided to put in a graphics card I had laying around and I was able to install just fine. Recently, however, I went to install CentOS 8 on that server and on a whim, I pulled the graphics card out and tried installing it and it went flawlessly. So my ancient hardware worked better with newer software. Sorry, that was kind of wordy, Kyle. Actually, Kyle, 
that's like the perfect length of feedback. Yes, if you, if you. everybody could condense their feedback into about that length, that's perfect. Any less, we wouldn't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So this is interesting because we just kind of talked about this a little bit. Um, and we've talked about it a lot in prior shows about, um, you know, some of the compatibility issues that come with hardware. And it doesn't matter if you're on Intel, AMD, you're wanting to use the Wacom tablet, you're wanting to use the latest Logitech keyboards, you can go down the list of devices that are being enabled in the latest kernels. And a lot of distros take a really long time to get around to updating to those kernels, you know, six months to a year, including with hardware enablement stack stuff that goes in there, you still could have up to six months in between that actually releasing. So uh, this is just kind of more uh, wood for the fire, if you will, on the argument that having an up-to-date kernel, having an option to have an update kernel does allow you to even bring older machines back to life. It's not just a new machine thing with people with tons of money buying the brand new stuff off the shelf. It's older machines that it can help get running as well. So appreciate the message there, Kyle. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of times where people would think that we're only talking about the late, like the latest and greatest hardware and there, there's, there are cases where, and I guess the most obvious thing that people talk about because the latest and greatest is the ones that are the most, uh, you know, interesting to talk about. But we also have to keep in mind that they're constantly improving things all across the board for all types of hardware and all types of different products and different peripherals and all kinds of stuff. So like the, anytime there's a new release of the kernel, it's not just for new hardware, even though that's a, the most obvious thing that people talk about. There's a lot more as well. Next in our community feedback, we have a video in here. It was sent by Nice Micro, and he sent a really nice uh, message to us, and we'll listen to it here in a second. He says, Dear Noah, Michael, Zeb, and Ryan, in no particular order. I guess he knows we fight internally about that, huh? Um, I'm really into your show. I love to listen to your opinions week after week on tech, ethical computing, and Linux. I especially like it when you have disagreements. That happens a lot and approach a topic from multiple angles. Unfortunately, on episode 143, all of you decided to take the same side on the changes of the new Arch install procedure with an even more minimal base. So I wanted to chime in in the form of a response. So let's take a listen to that. So hello, this one is a response to Destination Linux podcast episode 143. I love the show, but I respectfully disagree with the comments on Arch getting too difficult to install. I'm no way an authority on this when I read through the archive of the Arch Dev public mailing list for this change and there have been some concern among the developers for uh, making it too difficult for Arch beginners. But it seems to me, however, that the consensus is that Arch does not try to be a popular uh, distribution. They have a niche as their target audience and basically they are doing their best to serve that uh, specific uh, target audience and not the general public. And if you think about it, Arch Linux follows this philosophy of not altering any soft, anything from upstream. So they don't theme, they don't configure. The user needs to be able to do that, not just select the packages to use, but also configure them for their hardware, for their workflow. And if you are not comfortable with the installation through the command line following the wiki, uh, then you will have a lot of uncomfortable moments in with Arch in the future too. And this is not in something in a fine print. So this is everywhere in their homepage. You, it's a, it's a do-it-yourself distribution. And the same goes for third-party installers and video tutorials. 
The only officially supported method is following the installation guide on the wiki. If you make a tutorial or a script for others to use, it's uh, on you to keep it up to date and support the people who use them. And so I hope uh, I didn't come across as uh, you know rude and uh, condescending. I'm not an authority on this or anything, but I came to Arch as a Windows-only user and with a lot of reading, trial and error and patience uh, on a virtual machine, of course, I have finally have a very nicely running Arch Linux on my PC and this is a very uh, satisfying thing to have. So, peace out and bye-bye. So, that is a really nice message and first of all, I just want to make a note of Thank you for keeping the video relatively short and thank you for disagreeing with us with such class because that doesn't always happen instead of, hey, you stupid morons, why, you know, this is a, you know, you just, so yeah, it was very respectful message and can appreciate your point on there. I guess since I'm the arch guy, I will go uh, last here and see maybe Wendell, do you have an opinion on the new base changes that Arch made, is it no big deal? Or have you even looked in, had a chance to look at it yet? It's the, are you talking about the uh, the installer getting even more minimal in terms of like what it's offering you, right? Yes. Yeah, they've removed the kernel, they've removed bash, they removed the file system, they removed grep, they removed Linux <laughs> firmware, they removed the man pages, PC utilities, buy, they've moved pretty much everything. I mean, if that's why you're running Arch, then I suppose it's not really a big deal. I mean, there are other distros that aim to give you the uh, the other advantages of Arch that perhaps uh, don't have like the most fine-grained control. But I, I, this always seems like a very odd argument to me because if you care about these things, would you not just automate it yourself? Like, I mean, I'm not talking about like Linux from scratch necessarily. But if you care about these, this fine grained control at a very low level, like I'm going to, I'm going to run custom, I'm going to enable secure boot, but with my own keys, I'm going to lock my firmware down. I'm going to do all this stuff. If it were me, I would either keep meticulous notes on doing that or just automate it. Like, oh, something went wrong with my system. I'm going to do a PXE boot from the network or boot from my master USB key or whatever it is and just run through that uh, myself with a script. Or maybe it's just, I'm going to less the script real quick and be like, okay, I'm just going to adjust the script here for what I'm going to do and just let it run. I don't know that that you necessarily have to have a, a manual installation, but for me personally, putting that, like that would be something that I do at like USB creation time. Like here is the recipe for this system. I'm just going to go ahead and put it together, put what I need on the USB stick boot and then just do it. If I were interested in doing something that manually. Right. I'm not really that much of a masochist personally. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I was wondering where you were going that because I, I like I was, I was like, yes, I mean, I understand like the value in creating those automations things, but I was like, but, but why? Like when <laughs> when uh in the in the to response uh, from uh, Nice Micro uh, said that he went through this, he had a lot of patience and t and testing and going through trial and error through a virtual machine, and that's the that's really the piece of why we were talking about, not necessarily that arch is making is like making it too hard to install. I don't think that even really matters cuz that's not that's not really the argument that um, at least that I was saying last week. It was more that it's already difficult. They're just making it more difficult for really no apparent reason because the things that they're removing that people would now have to add 
doesn't really add much value in the uh, the, the process of installing it because the, the, you're going to install most of those things back anyway. Because, you know, the kernel, yes, you could choose between the hardened kernel or the LTS kernel or the regular kernel, but you could have already done that anyway with the regular install. Anyways, right? So, like, everything they removed, you could already change those things if you want. Switch wanted. out the file system if you want or anything else. You bring up a really good point, Wendell, about, you know, this is such a, this is something that I think people who are wanting to do this type of stuff would create a custom script to do anyways. And in fact, some of the people I know specifically, Ninja, uh, in our Telegram group who does this, who loves this type of change because he wants to set every single element himself, has a script that he works on to do all of this stuff for him. Again, I just think it makes the entry into Arch that much more difficult. I do, I am arguing on the side that I think it it makes Arch more difficult to install. I think when you talk about, well, people are responsible for updating all of those guides that they've created in the past, Unfortunately, in Linux, there are so many guides when I'm trying to fix things that I come across from all kinds of places on the internet where they're from the 90s, they're from the early 2000s, they're completely outdated, uh, but they don't present themselves initially that way. Also, when I think back to being a new user and just, you know, listen, it, you could say all you want that it's not right to just go and grab commands that you see in a forum to fix an issue and paste it in there and not know what it means. But when I was a new user, I did that a ton, right? I just, I just needed to you get You don't have time for a lesson. You don't have time right. for PhD in troubleshooting. What you need is the issue fixed right now. Yeah. So I you can learn. ArchWiki is the official place to get your information from, but the ArchWiki is, it's fantastic. It's an amazing tool. I guess, compared to other things out there, but it also leaves so much to be desired. As somebody who's used Arch now for uh, a, a, quite a while on all of my machines in my home, I go to the Arch Wiki sometimes and go, bang, that's exactly what I need. And I go there sometimes and go, I have no idea what you're talking about. And yes, I edit the Arch Wiki, so I'll go in there and try to make it more clear once I figure out finally what they're doing. And usually it gets removed out because they want it to be vague. They, they, there's, there's like a certain want for it to be difficult and vague instead of going into the details. Mm -hmm. um, a perfect example was with the, the Corsair drive that I put in or trying to fix some, sorry, the uh, NVMe drive for Grub. Uh, the, the Grub information in the Arch Wiki was so generic that it was impossible to use it to fix my problem without actually knowing ahead of time what the problem was. Whereas if when I went to Antergos Wiki on fixing Grub issues, and an exact section with, hey, if you can't boot, Grub's giving you this message. Here are some things you can do. That's way more helpful, in my opinion. So I'm not expecting ArchWiki to be perfect, but expecting that that is the only place people are going to go to get their information. It's just not reality. And I think the barrier for Arch has been made bigger, and I don't see anything that they've gained out of this. Unless, again, they come out and say, look, we just don't have enough developers to support adding in file systems and kernels and all this stuff. And this is what we had to do because we just don't have enough people helping us. It's going to take at least three full-time equivalents to include bash. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah, <laughs> totally. That's exactly. a good point. It changes all the time. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the, the One really good idea, maybe. No, it's a terrible idea. No, that's a great idea. I don't know. Uh, let's do an Arch installer that's a roguelike because then you can combine educating the user on how stuff is supposed to be with all of the minutia of installing Arch. <laughs> there you go. 
Like, or what is that suicide Linux where we, we yeah, suicide have arch where you type yes. in and, and it just deletes everything? Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, you're so concerned about not wanting to learn. You just want to fix your issue. Go try suicide Linux for a while. You'll learn. You'll, yeah. learn. <laughs> You'll learn not to do certain things. That's yeah. going to be the next arch. You make a mistake. You start over from scratch. boom. We'll teach yeah. you. I like it. So, but good video. Thank you for your opinion. And a lot of people agree with you, by the way. They think this is fine. We just happen to be on the fence of, I want Arch to become more popular. I think it's amazing. I'd like more people to experience it. And an argument to my own argument, there are things like Manjaro and Endeavor and, and options like that out there that do provide that. So if they yeah, want to that, make Arch. That's, that's really, but that's just a separate thing. You know, that's like, you know, that that's Endeavor and Manjaro realizing that Arch needs to be like, it has a great foundation and it's a good base, but it, it's just, it's not, it's not necessarily that it's too complicated. Cause I've saw, I saw these people, like a lot of people in the, there was the, the forum on the Destination Linux discourse forum. There's been uh, people talking about it and responding to that particular episode. So you, if you want to go check and put your own opinion, you can go check out that thread. Uh, there's also uh, YouTube comments and stuff are related to this. And most of the time they were saying that, you know, like the video saying uh, that Arch is meant for these types of uh, users and not necessarily meant to be, uh, you know, easy for everybody. And I will grant you that it's not really meant for that purpose. However, it was already difficult enough. And the things that they changed didn't really add much value other than the things that, because my point is like, if you wanted to change something of any of the things that they listed that they removed to make this base package more minimal, you could have already changed those things in the install. So it didn't really do that much of a difference other than make a guarantee, make a requirement to do all those things rather than just ha you, you could do those things. And so, make every guide outside the wiki ever written wrong. But yes, yeah. that too. And also the point about you said about get, finding uh, some threat, some uh, tutorials that are just so out of date. There was a t uh, like just a couple months ago, I was looking for something for like an RPM based uh, solution. And I was looking through it and it had no indication of when this article was written. And I, I, when I started looking through it, I was like, okay, this seems to be this is good information. And all of a sudden it starts talking about yum. I was like, wait, how old is this? <laughs> so, so like there's some times where like if, if, if every, if anything, please, when you do make tutorial, just put like a little date on there. This is when you did it. At least there's, you know, that would be helpful. Yeah. We love hearing from you, the community, and seeing from our listeners from all over the world. So make sure to send us a video comment showing your tech, showing your favorite desktop, or heck, just your beautiful face. If it's something that you think would be interesting, send in a comment, a suggestion, something that we might want to feature. You can send that in. You can post it on YouTube. You can put it on PeerTube. We don't care. Just make it public and send it in to us. You can send those at comments at destinationlinux.org. So before we get into the rest of the show, we wanted to take a minute to talk to Wendell. So this is a, since this is the first time on the show, we wanted to you know get some more in, in information about Wendell and you know have like a quick little mini interview. And so Wendell is a member of the Level One Techs and Level One Linux. Uh, his, his YouTube channel, which is pretty big, they together they have like four hundred thousand subscribers. So that's pretty nice. pretty amazing. And uh, Wendell is and his team is also have like a lot of great uh, videos on technology and hardware on those channels. So huge welcome to the show, Wendell. Great to be here. Thanks. Yep. Wendell, one of the first questions we want to ask is, and we basically ask anybody that comes on the program is, uh, tell us a story. How'd you get started in Linux? It was making old hardware go. <laughs> okay. Uh, the I had a problem. So it was in school. It was, uh, and they had a token ring network. And none of the computers on the token ring network, well, like the school was originally built without internet access. And then it got internet access not long thereafter. 
but the internet access was only on the ethernet side of things. And so there were only a few administrative computers that were connected to the ethernet network because ethernet was supplanting token ring at that point. But all of the rest of the computers in the entire school were token ring. And uh, the hardware to, to uh, bridge the token ring network with the ethernet network was more expensive than the school could afford. And so it was like, surely there's a solution for this. Turns out Linux, uh, IP masquerading, put an ethernet interface in and a token ring interface and ta-da, mm -hmm. it's good to go. So, nice. uh, and what year was this? This was uh, around kernel 0 0.96. Okay, so you've been like basically from the get go, you this has been something you've been following, yes. Um, and, did you, and did your career take you down that path where you were continuing down Linux, or did you get sucked into the Windows world for a while? Well, it the there was a lot of teeth gnashing, um, mm. from the school, you know, this solution is unsupportable and blah blah blah, and you know, being impressionable, I was going along with that and then not intending to be snarky, but really the, the shortest summary there is that in the conversation with the state level administrators, not just the local school, but like, you know, the fancy pants person had to come out of the middle of nowhere because it was mm -hmm. kind of rural and kind of like impossible to get there. Well, you can't get there from here from basically anywhere kind of thing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, sure. definitely a day trip for that guy, if not an overnight trip. And, uh, you know, he's like, well, you know, I know you're just trying to do some good here, but it's unsupportable and blah, blah, blah. And, and we got to deploy a real solution. And it's like, well, how much does the real hardware to do this cost? And it's like, oh, the it's like $10,000. And it's like, well, I mean, we we used a computer. We got out of the dumpster. So, I mean, if you could save ten grand at just one school, isn't it worth your time to learn how to do this? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you said that to him? Yeah, I said that to him. <laughs> Like, you know, <laughs> wet behind the ears. Like, I didn't mean it in a snarky way. Yeah, sure. It was just like, you know, the out of the mouth of babes. And uh, <laughs> he became very angry. <laughs> I learned what the word seething meant that day. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's funny because, you know, the school system was sort of the poster child of IBM. And now where the, f the future has gone, I just, you know, I just, I got to run Linux also. Um, I, I would I was experimenting with Linux at home and sort of running Linux and Windows at the same time because again, being very rural, uh, you know, sort of cast off technology. So I mean, we were using obsolete technology. It's, it was it was somewhere so rural that you know, ten twenty years behind the curve. So like I experienced all the technology evolution of the eighties in the surplus computers that were making their way to schools. You know, in the late eighties, early nineties, you know, mid nineties. And so, like, even before I was a teenager, I was on BBSs and crap like that. And so there would be, like, the local BBS meetup, and I would show up enough that I made everybody uncomfortable, which is also kind of fun <laughs> in retrospect. Because mm -hmm. it was like, oh, we've been talking about, oh, oh, dear. This is, so, like, everybody would be like, you know, because you get kind of loose on a BBS. And it's, just like, sure. and it's like, I don't know what that is, but I'm just going to happily be like, okay, whatever. Sounds good. I haven't <laughs> discovered that yet. Whatever. <laughs> so it, Linux was... Uh, not something a lot of other people were using, but there was another student and I who did a lot of really cool stuff with Linux and it was just like, let's see what we can do. And it worked really, really well on older hardware. Mm. And it worked in a way that was, was different philosophically than, than windows. And so, um, I wouldn't say that it's that like Linux or windows or, or anything career wise, Linux has always been present in my career, but you know, windows has been too. I mean, a lot of the, the one of the most commercially successful things that I did early in my career was 
using uh, Eric Raymond's fetch mail. I think it was fetch mail mm -hmm. in conjunction with Microsoft Exchange because early versions of Microsoft Exchange were basically garbage for man managing internet access or uh, sure. like temporal internet access and, and this kind of thing. So, yeah. and in, in the real, very rural area with dial up, you didn't necessarily want your machine to be on all the time, but email was a convenient thing. Mm -hmm. So had dial up machines that would dial up, collect email and then uh, deposit them into the local exchange mailboxes. So you would have intermittent email would be delivered in an intermittent way, like maybe six or eight or 10 times a day. I got you. Fetch mail, like the open source solution glue with commercial tools again, uh, was really handy. So that's pretty much been the story of my entire career is let's glue the commercial stuff that doesn't do something really well together with the proprietary stuff. And there's an opportunity to make some money there. So you've always approached us kind of pragmatically as, hey, there's these two platforms. I don't really care whichever one works better. And every single time, though, it seems like Linux keeps being the one that, you know, always kind of has an edge or kind of yeah. saves some money or can do yeah. something the other one can't. Very there's cool. Al Very there's cool. always an opportunity for Linux to lower the total cost of ownership and actually be a pretty solid solution, a pretty robust and reliable solution. I mean, it's completely taken over the universe in, mm -hmm. in my career. It's funny because Linux legit has completely taken over pretty much everything except for the desktop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have level one tech and level one tech Linux YouTube channels. What made you decide to create a channel just focused on Linux? Because in a lot of cases, you're not going to get the audience necessarily that you would get, say, having a Windows channel out there. <laughs> Linux, Linux needs a certain amount of evangelism, I think. But there's, there is also a, a difficult element of, uh, of Linux because... Deservedly so, once you sort of like figure it out and solve problems, I think that there is like an innate, almost evolutionary, like, you know, uh, like uh, Tom Hanks in the, the Castaway movie where he's on the island when he finally makes fire. <laughs> that level of excitement. It's like, I've made fire. It's like that's right. using Linux. So, I got Arch to boot. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, the Windows has, has escalated to the uh, to the, the propane blowtorch where you just walk out, push a remote button on your smartphone and the flame yeah. ignites. <laughs> yeah, I fire with two sticks. <laughs> so uh, I think that um, I think that they, uh, they're they're different audiences, and a lot of a lot of the work that I try to do with Linux is toward uh, reconciling those communities because a lot of there's there there's a lot of gatekeeping unnecessarily, and there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a very few bad apples that give everybody else a sort of a bad rep. The people that are in engineering and using Linux for their day job, even the like super, you know, evangelical ones, even the people, I mean, you know, in terms of like user freedoms and crap like that, Richard Stallman is not wrong. You just don't have to beat everybody up about it. And it's easy to see that he's not wrong about the computer owning the user, or controlling the user. When you look at cloud services and, and crap like that, I just think there's a fundamentally different way that you can approach that. And also, you can you you know it's not a it's not necessarily an absolute thing. There's the web comic where it's like, well, we could perhaps improve society a bit, and the guy's popping up, and it's like, and yet you participate in society. It's like uh, <laughs> there's there's kind of some truth to that. So yeah, having the Linux people sequestered is perhaps a good thing because they don't <laughs> they have not, their own channel and own area to, uh, <laughs> to to comment on. Yeah, so you're you're trying to combine them though with the more pragmatic. 
kind of approach saying, yeah, I use Linux. Yes, I love Linux, but it's not a religion to me. It's a tool that I use to get the work done. Type of thing. It is a little bit of a religion, but it's yeah. fine. We'll, we'll get, <laughs> we'll, we'll get the content's also harder because um, oh, yeah. it's a lot of, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And a lot of the other content is, is like, here's some hardware. Here's a project that we're working on. And the algorithm, the algorithm is a little bit unforgiving about distributing that as well. So it's not, it's not necessarily just the, the users in the community. A lot of the Linux people only want Linux content. They want nothing else. And the algorithm, the algorithm is set up to deliver that. But um, like we did a project video, a microphone that I'm using now, um, I constructed. And a lot of people really like that. But a lot of people wrote in and said the algorithm didn't really push that because that's we don't really have a lot of project videos. So some people are not interested in project videos. And so YouTube just is like, well, we're not going to deliver that to to all of your audience. And so YouTube is not a great platform for publishing a lot of different kinds of content. The algorithm will absolutely punish you for having. Oh, I know. A yeah, variety I know. Of content. So. <laughs> yep, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so you speaking about you made your made your own microphone you, and you, we do a lot of videos about your about hardware. How did you get your enthusiasm for hardware? How did that get started? Well, uh, again, growing up poor and in the middle of nowhere, it's sort of like a DIY thing. I mean, a lot of my early my first job with computers was when I was thirteen, and that was because um, my uncle and some other people in my family had had me help them work on fixing stuff. And so my first job when I was 13 was because, again, the aforementioned IBM computers, they had a, a through-hole resistor that would blow when kids were hard on Model M keyboards. So you're hard on a Model M keyboard, you yank the cord, it breaks the installation, the outer foil shorts something, it blows the fuse. Well, a poor rural school can't afford $900 motherboards for ancient IBMs. Uh, but I could replace the fuse. And so like the local computer service company is like, you can do, do what now? And it's like, yeah, just, just replace the fuse with another surface mount fuse. You don't lose anything. Motherboard's good as new. And they're like, do what now? And so that was another thing they got angry about. And then I was like, well, why don't you just hire me to work for the other people? And then I, you can pay them the <laughs> service fee and they won't be upset. And then it's still supportable. And then you get your motherboard back. And then it was like, okay, you need to leave the room while the adults discuss this. And so that's exactly what they did. <laughs> they hired me for the summer to help them do stuff. And so being able to hack on hardware, right to repair, that stuff I think is is critical. And being willing to. Well, yeah. And being willing to open the box up and say, I mean, at the time, I assume you didn't have a degree in electrical engineering. No, no. And, and I mean, so there's, I mean, there's some other kid out there, Wendell. There's some eight, there's some 16, 17, 18 year old kid. And he's in high school and he's saying, what do I know about soldering components to a motherboard? And to that, you would say YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <you> one text. <laughs> well, it's interesting, though, because I think this is a really important point that we have gotten into a culture and there's a lot of companies and organizations trying to fight this of a throwaway culture with our phones, with pretty much anything we buy. If it breaks, you go throw it in the garbage, you go buy a brand new one. And this idea of teaching kids, those of us with young kids, how to build and repair stuff, I think is an important part of parenting. That's what my dad did with me. That's how I got into computers. And what I try to do with my son and even Nate, who's a, one of our patrons uh, and longtime friend of the show was talking about, uh, he had a game controller. Uh, I think it might've been a Nintendo controller or something that had broken, but he had two of them that were broken. So he told his son, all right, take the parts from 
the one that's broken and put them in the other controller. Now, the easy thing to do would be like, oh, we don't have time to do that. We'll go down the GameStop. We'll buy you a new controller and you'll be ready to go. But the hard thing to do with parenting is to take the time to stop and teach your young kid how to start doing those repairs. And of course, that's right. the child's super excited because now they've been able to make a controller, um, you know, a Frankenstein controller out of old parts from another one and be able to uh, enjoy that. So I just, I think it's a really good point that you hit on there, Wendell, that, you know, uh, you're, you're growing up, you had to. Um, but even if folks don't have to, I still think we have to get out of this throwaway culture, you know, uh, that we're in with tech. The, the, there's a really interesting, we think about it in terms of like hardware and software. The hardware is like, you can be a complete idiot and still muddle through and be fine with the hardware. As long as the software is not super locked down, the software is actually a much more difficult proposition than the hardware but in terms of like the panopticon of all human knowledge on the internet, it's much easier because one person in like rural Saskatchewan can figure out the software secret to fix whatever it is. And then suddenly instantaneously, the entire world has it. Whereas with hardware, it's a little more difficult. It's a little more obscure that, you know, there can be multiple layers of the circuit board. There are going to be some hardware repairs that are easier than others. A lot of the time, just combining good parts with bad. Uh, but then you've got savants, like, you know, Lewis Rossman, who are just incredible, incredible, in, uh, you know, uh, diagnostician. I don't know. I don't know what to call him, but he is singular in his talent. And being able to put, you know, his board level repairs online, if you can follow a schematic, if you can just follow along with the video, all of a sudden it's really easy to repair that MacBook Air with, you know, just a few hundred dollars of tools. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's sort of transformational economically. Uh, for regions that are super poor, because you know, if you can pay somebody a hundred bucks to fix a laptop that is still perfectly viable, like I mean, the MacBook Air 2011 is no longer really supported by Apple. They're not going to update it for Catalina, uh, Catalina but uh, it's still a perfectly viable laptop that just happens to have a uh, a bug where the RAM goes bad really in, in a common way, and it's soldered. But with the right tools, even replacing the the soldered RAM is not really a big deal. Not everybody can do it but you probably could find somebody in your local community that could. Those people were there in the 50s and 60s and 70s, 80s. They kind of disappeared in the 90s and, and aughts. And, uh, well, the companies have forced this issue, too. Yeah. It's not just a people thing. The consumers, it, no, the consumers have had a, had a role in that. Yes, right? they certainly have, but the companies have made it like, look at Apple or new phones that you get. What yeah. new phone can you go pick up right now that has a replaceable battery? Yet when we started in this journey in cell phones, they all had a replaceable battery because right. we knew this was the thing that was going to go bad and but that they were going to pull out and replace every couple of years. But then what the consumer, this consumer sent the message, we want thinner and lighter phones. The consumer sent the message that we want sleeker and new phones. The consumer sent the message that I want a brand new phone every year or every two years. And the response to that is fine. Let's make phones that are less and, and the consumer wants phones that are cheap. So the response is the manufacturer makes a disposable phone that's made with cheaper parts that goes bad faster, is more difficult to repair, but whatever, it meets the requirements of the consumer. So I, I don't know. I do put a little bit more of the onus on us as the consumer than I do just just on the companies because I think they're trying to deliver to a set of expectations that we've put forward. Well, we're the only ones who could change it at this point. Right. right? I think That's I think right. no I think Noah's making a point about how he is uh, saying that the the consumers all just didn't like the uh, headphone jack so it's that's why Apple got rid of it. <laughs> right. Well, and, that uh, Apple is a Apple is a special case, but <laughs> Wendell, Apple there is, is very special. 
<laughs> there is a new federal law going into effect. I'm not sure if you follow politics very much, but there's a new law going into effect that uh, starting August 1st of 2020, you'll only be able to choose one distro and one desktop environment. I'm curious, have you put any thought in <laughs> what desktop environment and distro you're going to run for the rest of your life? I think if I think if that happened, uh, I'd probably be out of business. Um, <laughs> and, really? You you rely that much on different distros, huh? I, on yeah, I mean, just on because For video uh, content, probably. Oh, right? oh, I see, I see. Not not just video content, but also, I mean, just it, compartmentalization of concerns. Because like for just I'm screwing around on the internet. I don't care. Mm-hmm. For like my life documents and things that I've had, I mean, some of my dot files go back to like the nineties. So, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and it's like that stuff. That stuff is not stored on Windows. Uh, right. It's just Windows is a transient operating. What system. What, what, what is it? Sto- what is it stored on? ZFS. On Linux or on BSD or what? Um, that stuff is actually on FreeBSD, but I okay. have, in terms of like volume of storage, yeah. ZFS on Linux is in the, is in the petabyte range in terms of like amount of stuff stored for, for my personal stuff is, okay. is on a relatively small FreeBSD system that used to be FreeNAS that probably will become ZFS on Linux because ZFS on Linux, our level one stuff started life as FreeNAS and very quickly became ZFS on Linux, and now ZFS on Linux is super mature. So that's a Fedora system what? now that's doing everything. But I still have the you know ninety six disk Z pool, and that's great. What what's the advantage of ZFS on Linux over FreeNAS? I, I can understand if you're starting from scratch or if you're just trying to do a video or something like that. But what why actively move off of FreeNAS to move on to ZFS on Linux? What's the advantage there? I'm doing a I'm doing a collab with another channel in a couple of weeks, so look for that, and it will be more it will be less abstract, but in, a, in an abstract kind of a way. The ZFS on Linux with versioning and snapshotting is is really pretty awesome, and in a mixed environment, Samba has uh, snapshot support. So on in the Windows terminology, it's called shadow copy. Uh, you guys would probably know it as uh, snapshots, but the snapshots are exposed to the network shares. So any operating system that supports uh, getting at the previous version's Windows functionality. Uh, you can just go to a network share, right-click on it, and go to Properties, and there's a Previous Versions tab. And then you have network access to all of the snapshots of that shared aspect of the file system or in the ZFS vernacular, the ZFS data set that you've shared. And uh, in addition to that, and so with the ZFS data sets, you can set all the different things and, and that kind of thing. But Fedora specifically over FreeNAS provides much better virtualization and much better fine-grained control of how I'm going to uh, manage uh, VM storage, hardware pass-through, and stuff that is kind of getting there on FreeBSD with Beehive and some of their hardware pass-through stuff. But the FreeNAS stuff has not caught up there at all. It's a relatively old kernel. Currently, uh, FreeNAS will not even boot on any Threadripper system. So, right. like, if you just go download the installer and you do the installer for 11, it's based on 11 point whatever, it's not going to boot on any Threadripper system. And I don't know why it boots on an Epic system, boots on Epic Rome, does not boot on Threadripper. It just hangs it, like, initializing the power button. There have been little things like that with free, uh, free NAS where I just don't think that they're doing enough QAQC for, like, the home user. I'm sure it's fine with all the, the IX systems things. But it also seems like development of ZFS on Linux is outpacing ZFS support on on uh, even on FreeBSD in terms of new features. I feel like my shirt is fighting you on this right now, Wendell, with my FreeNAS <laughs> shirt right here. Yeah. Um, I will have a video soon. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nice. So um, I'm, I'm curious, though, you mentioned Ryzen, and I've noticed a lot of your content lately, you know, has been around the new Ryzen line, which, you know, speaks to me because I'm a huge fan of the Ryzen line. But I wanted to get your overall thoughts on the state of AMD's third generation CPUs and GPUs and why you think they're so much better than NVIDIA and Intel. I think, uh, I mean, it's <laughs> that's a loaded question. Um it's a, it's it's tough because I, it does seem like I'm developing a specific love for for AMD, but it's also true that on for like client projects and like helping people build a server system, I slash we meaning me and other people that I've helped, uh, not me personally, like in terms of like getting business done, we forked over a lot of money to Intel, like a crazy amount of money. And it's like, wow, really? Am I paying $3,000 for an eight-core server CPU in 2019? That seems a little insane. Right. And you look at the performance, you know, like since Sandy Bridge, and I just, it seems like Intel has been asleep at the helm. And so now, you know, AMD scrappy little upstart that is literally one-tenth the size of Intel is able to uh, outmaneuver or at least match performance for like a general use case. It's an exciting time. Competition is really, really good yeah. for the consumer. AMD has also been sort of forced into being more open source and being like inside the industry. It's 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 much more nuanced problem. A company can't simply be open source friendly. There are a lot of people inside companies that want to extract the maximum value that they possibly can of anything under their control. And it wouldn't be unfair to say that corporations, any size corporation really, is almost designed to be as sociopathic as possible with respect to anything that they can interface with. And so they want to control everything. They don't want to open source anything because that might, you know, there's this fear of missing out, basically. Right. AMD is kind of, the market has sort of forced them to be more open with AMD GPU, even though they are still doing like their proprietary drivers. There's, there have been also specific things that we've been able, like the community, the level one community is large enough and if we can, you know, make it appear larger and get more participation and things like that, the companies are actually sitting up and paying attention. Like I've worked with AMD specifically on things like the PCIe bus reset issue. Mm. So like NVIDIA for virtual, like VFIO, I love VFIO virtualization. It's great, you know, hardware pass-through. It's something I've run for years because it lets me contain windows inside a nice insulated sort of uh, I don't know, uh, antiseptic condom, let's call it. And then so I can have the nice freedom out here and then windows can be shut down or, or turned off or whatever. And uh, it's, it's kind of a nice situation because windows is contained. And so I love VFIO and, and this kind of thing. And AMD did not provide appropriate PCIe function level reset constructs, primitives, whatever you want to call it on the PCIe bus for a lot of their GPUs, they're like, ah, we don't really need it. They didn't really provide good um, ACS isolation initially. It's like, uh, do we really need it? You know, in the conversation that I was having with them, the executives were like, well, we could probably just do that in software. And it's like, no, you don't understand how IOMMU works. Let me explain it. Very nice, respectful, like, I mean, yeah, you probably could do it in software, but let's talk about why that's a bad idea. Well, yeah. especially with AMD and their software, because they're yeah. really not good at writing software. They're great at innovating hardware and that scene, but their software leaves much to be desired. It's I'm not sure that it's not that they're not good at it, but it's definitely a staffing issue. And so when you when you have a tenth like your your budget is 
one tenth what uh, Intel is, or your your you know your gross income is one tenth what you gotta gotta get creative. And one of the places you get creative is uh, not having a lot of developers. <laughs> and uh, so now I think that AMD is is probably making money hand over fist with their their Zen design and the other things. I'm hoping these problems just go away because they're able to hire people um, to to just deal with the software end of it. And they are. So like the PCIe bus reset, recently I have reason to believe that they've come around and they're like, okay, yeah, you know, you were probably right about the whole PCIe bus reset thing. Let's actually fix that the way that we need to. And so they're looking at that and taking that seriously. And there have been several other things for like the Linux use case um, where they have, have done that. And like only testing in Ubuntu 18.04, or what was it when they released their GPU or their uh, new X570 line? So the only system that could boot Linux yeah. was well, Ubuntu, an, an old Ubuntu version, basically. That was, and that was because RD Rand was not functional. And that, that was actually, I have reason to believe that that was actually caught but there wasn't enough time to fix it because all of the people that are working, it sure seems like from looking at the outside that all the people that are working on like the Agiza firmware, they're working for Amazon and Microsoft and things like that on the Epic side of things. And certainly we see that because it's like, you know, where there's, there's an Agiza update coming that's going to improve performance for the 3900X and with the launch of the 3950X and the leak benchmarks. And right. again, it's just, we need more programmers to do stuff. So it's kind of AMD hire some more people like Wendell. Well, I mean, it wouldn't, I see that's, I don't think one person can solve it. I think you need a giant team and the infrastructure in place to do Fine. it. Hire not, Wendell and me and we'll get it. <laughs> and then clone both of them like many times. Yeah. That kind of hiring is just, it's not the kind of thing that you do. You need those people on staff for like 10 years before that's they get true. to that like super echelon of productivity. And then it's right. just bam, they get everything done. The earlier in the in the in the interview, you we were talking about how that you know Linux dominates the the whole like the market, and you know the only thing that doesn't dominate is the desktop. So, what changes do you think Linux needs in order to compete in a more aggressively on the desktop? I'm not. I mean, I have my opinions about about this, but one of the things that makes Linux so amazing is that it's so diverse, and there's so many different things. I mean, we we're talking you know before the show we were recording, we we're talking about like uh, KDE. And uh, I, I use GNOME, but you know, whatever. We probably need a Linus Torvalds of the Linux desktop experience. So the Linux mm-hmm. desktop experience is not, it's not set up to be led by a brilliant visionary. Like him or hate him, whatever you think of his leadership skills, Linus was a kind of visionary. Right. And mm-hmm. his lieutenants are, are sort of towing the line. And there are, I think, visionaries out there in terms of the Linux desktop experience, but everybody is so opinionated that it's hard for them to like get traction and uh, actually build it. And so I think that we could actually have a Linux desktop experience that takes over the whole universe if we have, you know, that person to lead it. And I don't, we don't have to imagine what a world is like where that exists. We, it already Android. Android is that Google was like, this is our vision for what this should be not on the desktop, but on phones. And a few billion dollars later, here we are. But I mean, how many billions of dollars is tied up with open source developers that have already put in their work? I think if we have a visionary, like work with all of the different software companies and compile it, and it's a lot of little things like faster response time, making the system like the whole 90 Hertz one plus thing. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that on the desktop because on the desktop, I got some bad news that extra frame, the compositor inserts 
that's annoying. And I know why it's there. And I know it has to be there. Let's re-architect it so that that doesn't have to be a thing because we can. This is, it's not, Linux should not be a second class desktop experience because under the hood, it is one of the finest creations that mankind has ever done. It's up there with like the seven wonders of the world, but in software, like this will be an enduring thing that people are talking about hundreds of years in the future. I don't think people are going to be talking about Windows hundreds of years in the future, but what Linux is and what Linux will be will be an an historical creation of mankind. And we just can't get like anybody that looks at the source code of, of Linux and wants to learn more about hardware and how stuff works under the hood. When we, you know, if we tie that into the earlier part of the conversation, talking about repairing hardware and being able to see inside the machine, a lot of the, you know, the magic dude behind the curtain is in the Linux kernel. If you really want to learn about computation and how stuff works in the scheduler and like all kinds of really amazing computer science, he thinks there's no better place to learn the Linux kernel and the history of the Linux kernel. And in that same vein, in terms of the awesome human brilliance here, we don't have that on the desktop experience. Yeah. And, and the folks true? we have that are focused in this arena want to, are, are just want to build out the cloud. Cause that's guaranteed money. The companies that are involved in Linux, they, that's where the money's at. That's where they're going and nobody's stopping. This is what I've been trying to get across to say, Hey, you know, there's a couple trillion dollar companies out there that reached the trillion dollar mark that made their money on the desktop space too. But nobody in Linux seems to really see that. Now, I actually have some hope, strangely enough, that a hardware company is going to end up doing it. It could be something like System76 that comes in and takes that vision um, that you were talking about and takes the Linux desktop to the next level because it's so close. It's so close to being there. Um, But then again, when the new Ryzen you know, lineup came out and the new GPUs came out and you can't boot it and no, nothing supporting it. And the only hope out there was system 76 basically that came in and went and said, Hey, we'll fix this. That those are the type of issues that you run into ever so often in Linux that make you go. It's not quite ready yet. There's a lot of very unfun things to do. Like open source developers are in it for the passion, but the level of unfun things left to do is crazy. And whoever is leading it is probably going to have to, I mean, they'll probably be thought of as like a terrible app because they're going to be telling the developers like, no, I'm sorry, you have to make this tiny change to like the file manager in GNOME because it is slightly inconsistent with like this other program over here. And we're going to agree on this convention. And like the programmers just like, that is the super unfun kind of Don't program. tell me what to do. I wrote this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. So it's, it makes perfect sense why we are where we are, but Somehow, Linus Torvalds is just like the sheer brilliance of the man. I guess is just like let's do it, and it's done, and there it is. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's a really good point about the, like the the way that like like UX designers and project managers are kind of looked at as being like people who are enforcing their opinion onto others, and that being a negative aspect. But the the people who can kind of orchestrate that sort of thing is a necessity. In many cases, on the like it's the desktop and just in general, because a lot of the times people like can make can make amazing things, but if there's not a cohesive effort to kind of create make everything go together, it's just going to be like it's amazing here, and then other places it just falls apart. So like uh, it's a very good point. And and to be fair, uh, even Android struggles with that. Look at how well put. I mean, iOS. I think this is a controversial topic, you know, trigger warning. I don't know. I think iOS in general is more well put together than Android. True. Common things that a user would want to do. 
Android is, has become a little bit of a dumpster fire. If anything, they've moved backwards a little bit from the earlier vision. You know, in the beginning, iOS was like, we just don't do those things. And it's like things like the clipboard. It's like, you mean to tell me that not having cl- clipboard is a better user experience? And it's like not having the clipboard versus the inconsistent behavior of like selecting text and a clipboard. And if you've used any version of Android recently, even on flagship devices, like the select text controls and copy to the clipboard and like the functions of just basic things in the URL bar, URL bar, it's wildly inconsistent and just not a great user experience. You can tell it's piecemealed together. It's not meant to be a fluent, you know, experience. And yeah, yeah, I think that that you're right. That is in some ways a comparison to Linux on the desktop. It's been awesome. I've got to run. Thank you guys for having me very much. Yeah. Let's do it again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean everyone check out Windows Channel at uh, uh, Level 1 Techs and Level 1 Linux on YouTube. And yeah, thanks again for coming onto the show, Wendell. No problem. Oh, one last thing. Uh, ZFS, I know you guys are going to talk about ZFS on Ubuntu 19.10. Uh, there's this project called Manjaro Snapper. Dude's brilliant. He's got some videos on YouTube. We are working on porting that for ZFS on root. We actually did this before mm. Ubuntu 19.10. There's a, there's stuff going on on that on the forum, but uh, you know, ZFS is like, why ZFS? Why not butter FS? It's a billion dollar file system. They spent a <laughs> billion dollars developing this thing. Let's use it. Yeah, so nice. uh, it's, the nice thing about snapper is that you create a snapshot of your file system. And then when you boot in your boot menu is the version of your root file system as it was for that particular snapshot. So you can create a snap, do an upgrade, whatever. And if it goes horribly wrong, you just roll back to the previous snap. And if you have separate like home and root partitions, uh, you can only roll back the, uh, the root partition if you want. Seems a really, seems like a really great situation for arch because sometimes when I do like an arch update or do an update on Manjaro, if things are not perfectly in sync, Mm -hmm. something's broken and it's like uh, a little bit of a tricky situation. Whereas with that for noobs, you could just like, let's go back to the previous snapshot. Good to go. That's one of the values of Tumbleweed having ButterFS that you have that snapshot and the snapshot ability and not have to worry about that kind of thing. Having that mm-hmm. being applied to Arch and other distributions would be fantastic. Oh. Wendell, it's fun. It's awesome. Let's do it again. Hey, hey Wendell, yep. Wendell, before uh-huh. you go, what, what mic are you using? I built this mic. So we did a video and it's a clone of a Sheps uh, CMC5. And we've got a Sheps CMC6, but they're fantastically expensive microphones. Uh, this microphone was only about. 250 bucks worth of parts, give or take. And it sounds 99.7% as good as the Shep's CMC6. Wow. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks. I appreciate the info. No problem. Take care. Thanks, Wendell. Thanks again to Wendell for coming onto the show. And uh, unfortunately, he had to go uh, before we before we got to the news section. So, but we uh, we wanted to uh, take the opportunity to bring on one of our patrons because we we do this all the time. Not all the time, but uh, you know, sometimes we'll bring on a patron who has no time whatsoever to look at the show notes or anything and just kind of throw them into the the into the deep end. So uh, this this time we're going to bring in Matt to be a part of the show for from our patron section. So welcome to the show, Matt. Uh, thanks, guys. Appreciate being here. All right, awesome. So, Matt, you could just jump in with your raw opinion. You won't have any time to look at the notes, which is fantastic because we'll just get it uh, as you think of it. So, thank you though for jumping in and helping us out. Speaking of which, we have a new addition to the Destination Linux Network family. So, as you know, we launched Destination Linux Network. We have a lot of awesome talent out there that have joined the network. And we have a new show that we're very excited to bring to you now that will be a part of that. DLN 
Extend. So DLN Extend will be hosted by Nathan Wolf and Eric Adams. If you've been a part of Destination Linux community and Telegram forums it, during the network launch, these individuals have been a part of our family for a very long time. They're incredibly knowledgeable in Linux and bring some very unique takes. Um, they also are not always forgiving on some of the things we say on this show. They don't always agree with us, but Linux is not going to be just about Destination Linux. It's going to be about any show uh, that airs a part of the Destination Linux family. So Ask Noah Show, DOS Geek Channel, Destination Linux, Tux Digital, Linux for Everyone. Their show is basically going to be a community viewpoint into the content that gets released that week. Now, we've been able to get a sneak preview, obviously, of the first episode, and I can tell you it's incredible. They go into some topics on the Ask Noah Show. Um, they go into some topics on Destination Linux, and they kind of do a deep dive into, because on this show, we cover so much information, so many news, we don't always get to go into depth. The same with the Ask Noah Show. It's on a timetable. It's going to start on the hour. It's going to end on the hour. He doesn't have time to always explain his full opinion on everything going on. And that's where a show like this truly comes in and can really give a different perspective on some of the takes that we have, which I think is awesome. Um, so they'll deep dive into important topics of the show each week and give you their perspective. And yes, they'll disagree with us, which we won't be happy about, but they have the full right to do uh, from time to time. So be on the lookout for DLN Extend Podcast. We are so excited to have Eric and Nate join us because you're just going to absolutely love the show. That sounds super exciting. And I am going to be particularly excited to hear because I don't I don't get a lot of direct uh, interaction, right? Like obviously we get feedback and stuff like that, but to actually have ongoing discussions, I think that would be exciting. And of course, being a part of the same network, it'll be exciting to invite them on if we vehemently disagree on something. You know, maybe we can bring them on to, for example, ask Noah and have that discussion on the show um, or also just highlight clips of something to give a different perspective because you're right, Ryan, you know, on a tight, you know, on a 59 minute and 50 second show, there is only so much time that I have to dig in and, 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 and delve into something. And it's nice to get other perspectives. And so if we don't get that from a phone call, we don't get that from the interactive bumble room. We don't get that from the interactive chat room. Then the, then the, the community at large addressing that is awesome. So I'm really excited to see where this goes. Yep. And also we have a another thing to announce is that we're going to be doing a community event. We're going to do a gaming night. So people, we're going to be doing some live streams throughout the, the Destination Linux Network. A lot of people are going to participate in this. And we're going to be doing that on Saturday, November 9th. So you'll be able to join us and do some various different games. We're going to have uh, Jason Evangelo from uh, Links for Everyone. He's going to be a part of the streaming thing. So we're going to have it basically through, if you're in the EU, you can join uh, Jason to uh, be part of the gaming night there. And uh, then we're going to be, you know, essentially starting at like noon for the U.S. people or depending on what part of the U.S. you're in. And uh, yeah, so you can j join us on the 9th. And uh, yeah, we can, we're going to play a variety of different games. We haven't really decided what types of games yet. Uh, Warframe will be in there. Rocket League will be in there. But right. it will be a game night where you can all join in. You can game with us depending on the game. If there's an opportunity there, you can troll us, Dark One. Uh, I think that would be exciting for you uh, <laughs> there. Uh, or join with us in playing. So it, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's kind of a way to bring all of the shows uh, together and the community together to have some fun out there. And you can get more information on destinationlinux.network. 
because we're going to be posting information about it on the forum. So if you want to know the exact start yep. time and information, it will be out there on the forums, which you should be joining anyways, because they're awesome. And all of our shows and information get posted there and you can talk about them uh, on the forums as well. Yeah. And we're going to have a link to that forum thread in the show notes below. Ubuntu 19.10 is adding ZFS support. Now, this is going to be extraordinarily exciting. If you have used FreeNAS, if you have paid, if you, unless you're living under a rock, really, uh, or if you want to get off of that nasty ButterFS, <clears throat> this is your opportunity to do that. So Ubuntu has, has a new release across all of its official flavors with 19.10 codenamed, uh, come on, guys, really? I think Eon. it's... Ermini? I think Eon Ermina. Whatever. I'm pretty sure I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty sure it's Eon Ermine. Right. E-fizzle, E-fizzle. Including NVIDIA drivers on the ISO installation image. Uh, 32-bit app support is included. GNOME 3.34 for Ubuntu proper. Linux kernel 5.3. We'll have Pulse Audio 13.0. A bunch of other advantages and, and things that will be available. Different theme supports for Snap apps. FW update, which is going to be fantastic for updating firmware, and that's going to be included as a snap. But perhaps the most exciting changes for many is this experimental inclusion of ZFS file system. Now, Ubuntu has supported ZFS in the past, but recently, after reviewing the license, they've determined that they're able to move forward with full ZFS support. So in 1910, this is going to be experimental for the desktop, but will also be looked at for the server later on. So this is experimental, so you want to do lots of backups. This is, should not be your primary machine. It should not right. be something where you're going to lose the pictures of your kids, the dirty pictures of your wife, stuff like that. You're going to want to make sure to have all of that stuff backed up somewhere else, and you probably want to avoid, if possible, using it on production systems. That said, I would tell you that uh, even though it is experimental, there is a long track history of ZFS. ZFS has been around for a long time. ZFS on Linux has been around long enough to use it in production. And so uh, the official disclaimer is that it's it shouldn't be used on production systems. I would tell you, it depends on how important the production system is. Um, but it, it, So it's going to include things like native encryption. It's going to include trimming support, checkpoints, raw encrypted ZFS transmissions, proje- uh, project accounting and quota, and a lot of performance enhancements. And so this is pretty exciting. Ubuntu and ZFS are kind of merging together, and they're going to take advantage of some of those rollback uh, capabilities and things that Ubuntu is going to have now thanks to the features of ZFS. What Are you guys excited about 1910? I don't really get turned around the axle over the in-between ones it's really more the lts that, that kind of jerk my chains but I, I this is uh this is cool and the fact that they're they're officially endorsing zfs says a lot about the instability of butterfest don't you guys agree well oh, yeah. wait a minute i mean oh, the sorry. best feature of butterfs is the snapshot and rollback options i think one of the best features of it i've used it before yeah. i absolutely love it and the fact that ZFS is bringing that to Ubuntu, that is amazing, right? I, I'm super excited about ZFS. You made me a fan of FreeNAS, uh, Noah, and it's just, it's almost unbreakable is kind of how I view it. Like it, it just works and always works and my data is always there and available. It does what I need it to do, the file system. I could connect to it from yeah. anywhere. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. And I love that they finally figured out these licensing issues. Yes, 19.10 as a whole kind of 
a boring release, but that's okay. There's nothing wrong with the pretty blase. You know, you don't need to have bells and whistles and fireworks every time you do a release. But I think the ZFS portion of the 19.10 is probably the most exciting thing. The the polishing of the stuff, like Ubuntu Mate had a lot of polishing and uh, fixing paper cuts and all kinds of stuff. So like maybe there's not anything huge beyond the, the I mean, this is experimental, so you could technically say it's not a part of this release exactly. But this is also having ZFS on route to be more specific, not just having ZFS as a support. And that that's a, a big thing that, it you know, in the... It, big- it is, but ZFS on route on Linux, the f- I, I remember in 2015, that came out on Arch. And were there some paper cuts? And were was it, you know, is it what I would have recommended? No. But was it catastrophic? No. I mean, we you could work around it. There were some issues that you had to work around, but it was workable. So 2019 for, I mean... I don't know. Again, I get it. I get why the official disclaimers don't use it on production system, but like it's been around for a while. What do you think, Matthew, of uh, Ubuntu 19.10? I think a lot of the, the stuff is more for me looking at it as an end user, like the NVIDIA drivers being included, the the update to the newer kernel for Ryzen's support will be better out of the box. So when it rolls into the LTS, we'll have better support. The improved Yaru themes um, is a big one. Uh, and the uh, firmware update uh, uh, available as a snap is something that I'm really excited about because as an end user, that stuff is functionally what really matters Yeah, to, uh, to me. Um, ZFS, kind of like Noah's point, it's been there, so it's it's another feather in the cap to, so what's the point of BSD? <laughs> Perfect. Exactly. Yep. But uh, well, it's yeah, interesting you mentioned that because uh, somebody somebody's going to be switching from free BSD in the next story. Yeah. So this is an interesting bit of news that happened this week. Project Trident is ditching free BSD and moving to Linux. This move is rather unique in my time in Linux. I've not seen a occurrence like this happen before. But the reasoning that they're giving is hardware compatibility issues with free BSD. Um, package availability problems and things just being really slow at the root of why they want to move over. So one example was FreeBSD updating their Telegram client. Uh, This was kind of in a discussion about them making this move and to provide some examples. And they said it was after FreeBSD finally updated the Telegram client, apparently it was still nine releases behind. So that's pretty slow. Um, so they will be moving to Void Linux, and they had this to say on their page. For a small preview, we're already experiencing faster boot times, daily app updates, newer hardware drivers, Bluetooth support in the new version of Project Trident. Uh, we'll post more information and details about these changes in the near future. So they're going to continue to support their current version through April, it looks like, of 2020. But starting January 2020, you'll have the option of moving to the new Linux base out there. And they will also be moving over their Lumina desktop, which I've never had a chance to play with. Um, So I'm kind of excited to see what Lumina desktop is all about. And they're going to be focused on having a more up-to-date OS. So kind of unprecedented in my time in Linux, but uh, what's your opinion on this thought, on this move? I actually don't even, I can't think of a time, even, I've been around Linux for many, like multiple decades, and I can't remember a time where this happened. I remember a time when it happened. It was the world went from <laughs> trying to go down Unix and then switched over to Linux because they found it was a better experience. So what's interesting, if you read the brief, what they talk about and the things that they cite are all of the things that we on the Linux side 
I mean, no offense. I like BSD guys, right? Like they're, they're my friends. And if I had to choose between the Windows camp, the Mac camp and the BSD camp, I'd still choose the Linux camp. But the problem <laughs> is that they uh, they're constantly trying to pull people and say, hey, come over here because we don't have the problems that you have. We have a more tight knit community. We address real problems. We blah, 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 blah. And the thing that I think they that gets lost on them is they don't have some of the problems that we have in the Linux world precisely because they're not as big as we are in the Linux world, right? And so they have there a lot of the things that work on BSD work because of the transition layer, the translation layer that was built for Linux. And if it wasn't for the work that's being done on Linux, BSD would be such a terrible experience. I don't think anybody would use it. Not to say there aren't some good things that come out of it, read ZFS, but for the most part, the real advantages in BSD oftentimes stem from Linux. And so what the developers of Trident looked at is said, listen, we wanted we didn't want to make a BSD desktop clone. We wanted to make a desktop distribution that happened to be at the time based on BSD. So what's interesting about the Trident project is it was designed primarily to be a desktop operating system, not necessarily a desktop version of BSD, but a desktop operating system. And then what ended up happening was over time, they started looking and going, hey, all the things that we need for compatibility, all the things to make binaries run, all the things that we need to make it a good desktop experience are either due to Linux or Linux technology or coming from Linux, why don't we just rebase the distro on Linux? Now, of course, that's an unpopular decision in some circles, but the reality is it makes a lot more sense if you actually want Project Triton to be a real desktop contender. I'm excited about this because void Linux is something that has, I've heard it and I don't know why, but it's completely... It, it, it's just never come on my radar where I'm like, oh, I'm going to try that out. But I was reading about Void Linux and it appears to be a rolling distro. So this is kind of another contender in the rolling distro realm, which I'm very excited about. And now we have a new desktop environment to play with. So I'm kind of excited that they chose to roll over to Linux because this could be something really cool. Yeah, I think this I was, is really interesting. I was going to say, have I actually ran Project Trident on some hardware for a bit. Um, it's an interesting take on FreeBSD currently, but I think the move with Lumina and all the other stuff, which has been available on Linux because it's a QT-based environment, it's a more trimmed-down version. of somewhere between LXQT and full Plasma, basically. I think this transition is interesting, though, because they do want a full-functioning OS. And as much as I like the BSD guys, you guys depend a lot on Linux technologies. It, it's just what it is, though. Um, yeah. So I, I think Void is an interesting choice to go to as, as far as a rolling. Now, you play with all kinds of crazy distros. So I can't imagine, Matt, you haven't played with Void in the past. What was that experience? Uh, like. I have not actually used Void. I've heard of Void. People have suggested Void on various channels that I am part of, and it just it doesn't. It's kind of like a straight Arch install to me. It just doesn't click that wheel for me. I'm, I'm not. I'm not one of those guys. Well, hopefully they're looking to make Void Linux an easy install with a nice desktop on top of it, and we'll have something kind of u- unique to try out here. So. Um... They're working on it now. It looks like in the January time frame, right after Christmas, we'll have another present, another uh, holiday to check out a new distro out there. So yeah, pretty cool. I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty excited about it because there's one of the things that I I've tried Lumina on the on Linux uh, in in through I'm pretty sure it was Arch that had it or something, and it was interesting to try out, but it was always something like where I can't really you know, focus heavily on it because it wasn't like, it was kind of like a porting thing and having project Trident 
bringing it to Linux. I think that's really one of the things that I didn't ever try Project Triton much anyway because it was the it wasn't a Linux based thing. But now coming over to Linux, it's very interesting to see what happens with that because they have a lot of pretty cool ideas in the way they have their infrastructure, their setup. So uh, yeah, I look forward to trying it out. So up next in the show is KDE Plasma 5.17. So this is a one of the big releases for Plasma. This is the next release, and they're uh, they're they're actually they're about to go into their LTS release, which is great. But uh, this is the one right before that, and uh, there's there's a lot of stuff that we're gonna we can talk about, but we're not gonna talk about everything because we're not gonna have we don't have two hours to devote just to Plasma, uh, which is understandable. Wow. Um, but. <laughs> But in this particular release, there's there's actually been mostly just some uh, some uh, performance improvements, some uh, you know polishing up the different uh, layers and er- areas of it, like improving the uh, fractional scaling support or high DPI on Wayland. Uh, one of the things I think is probably the most interesting in this particular release is that they added the, a nightlight or a feature, kind of like a Redshift or whatever for uh, X11 because they already had one for Wayland, but it wasn't available for X11 uh, initially. So they've added that into X11, so which is, which is fantastic because one of the things that I um, noticed that I started using Redshift and it changed my approach to computing a lot because it used to, you know, like used to have like the, bl- the blue light, basically, if you don't know, is like once at nighttime, the blue light keeps you awake more. And it can give you a headache to some people and, you know, that kind of thing. And having a nightlight feature that turns off that uh, that impact or that that much intensity is a very nice thing to have. And there's also been a lot of improvements to, like, the widget resizing on the desktop. They've improved the, some stuff in the Discover app with, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that always uh, bothered me about Discover is that their progressor bars didn't really make any sense that they weren't really doing. Wait, isn't any- this amazing though, in this day and age that progress bars are this difficult and they must be insanely difficult because when I had yeah. to do, I told you guys a couple of weeks ago about my father-in-law, his windows machine, he got duped by, you know, some caller pretending to be from, um, I forget whatever antivirus software he had. But in any case, when I had to reload the machine, it took windows at the four hour mark was still at like 36%. And then all of a sudden it's a hundred percent and done. Like yeah. nobody can get progress report progress bars to work in 2019. It's not even just, they work every, we don't have a lot of time. So I'll just suffice to say, cause this could be like a half an hour rant suffice to say, can we just please put the progress bar in the same freaking place on every day? Like, in KDE, it's down in the little toolbar. In Unity, it was a pop-up window. In GNOME, it's the dumbest thing ever. It's like a little pie thing in the corner in some obscure you'll place. You'll never see, yes. It's just, you know, I, I literally argued with a client for like 15 minutes last week. He's like, yeah, it doesn't have a progress bar. I'm like, it does. It's just in a dumb place. Like, no, I've looked up. I'm like, trust me, it has it. It's just a really dumb place. He's like, I, I, don't, I log in, I show up. That's the dumbest play. Oh, who? I'm like, yeah, like I said, really dumb play. <laughs> right. Anyway, if we could get on a standard way, that'd be great. I'm lobbying to get rid of percentages. They're never right. Yes, and just correct. make a little animated something that keeps I, moving. How much data the, has been I'm copied? Running. How much data is left to be copied? Total size of the data to be copied and estimated time remaining. That's fine. I will, I, you know, actually, forget estimated time remaining. Data to be copied. Data that has been copied, total data to be copied. Give me those three things. I'll figure it out. And That's the data rate, kilobits per second yeah. or megabits per second or whatever, the rate. Because if you just have the animation, what is your first thought? You're like, well, maybe it's frozen and I just don't know. But by adding those things in there where you're seeing files get copied or moved, now you know something's happening. I sit here and I wait. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But I, yes. also need, I also need a progress bar to show me the difference between this two. So what, we have a problem here. 
No, Michael, you don't need a progress bar. <laughs> okay, fine. You're getting kicked out of the club. <laughs> but it's it is kind of interesting that the progress bar has been such a huge issue for so many years. Nobody can get it right. Yeah, it's it's, it's not an issue. It's not a, a bash against Discovery. It's just like that's just a thing that still doesn't work in most places. So anyway, yeah. uh, they also get did some improvements to uh, the, the notification system so that when you go into uh, pre- a presentation mode for your displays, it will automatically turn on the do not disturb. So that's the, you know there's just nice little polishing things like that here and here and there on Plasma five point seventeen. So if you're Ooh. interested in checking it out, you can find a link to it in the show notes. So System76 has been on a roll lately with their hardware innovations, and this week we get some more great news. At least I think so. Some people out there, of course, don't, but we'll get into that in a minute. The Darter Pro and Galago Pro laptop lineup now come with Core Boot. So on their ordering page in the laptop, System76 added this blurb that says, get System76 open firmware powered by Core Boot for a secure boot that's 29% faster um, and if you pre-order one of those machines now, you get exclusive first access into um, their journey here with Coreboot. So for those who may not be aware, Coreboot is a replacement for your BIOS, UEFI, and provides things like, well, the improved boot speed they mentioned, customizable boot splash screen. So now it could be a picture of, you know, um, me on your screen, Michael, when you boot your machine for first day time. Of course. You know, that would be support a secure boot process called vBoot2 and unbrickable update process for your firmware. So this is a huge upgrade, I think, for System76 to start going down this journey. It shows the level of equipment they have for open sourcing hardware technology. But of course, there are some critics out there who are like, well, it's not good enough. So some of these critics, uh, actually one of the critics in particular is going to be interviewed on the Linux for Everyone podcast it's a part of the Destination Linux Network. So check that out this week because that's going to be an interesting interview. There's one critic that I found, which may be the same individual, T. Pearson, uh, that Jason's going to have on the show, I'm not sure, uh, but appeared to be from Raptor or a fan of Raptor computers stating, how are you claiming open source firmware when your hardware requires signed closed source binaries to even begin to boot? I refer specifically to the Intel management engine which incidentally is why we gave up on x86 many years ago. How did you solve the GPU closed signed firmware problem for discrete GPUs? And how about the Wi-Fi card firmware? These are all valid questions in a way, but I looked at this as not System76 has solved open source hardware because clearly they still ship with NVIDIA GPUs. They still ship with Intel and AMD CPUs. Um, I didn't have the expectation that Core Boot was, but it's the journey towards that direction, yeah. is how I viewed it. Um, now, what was interesting to me is somebody asked, hey, you're so into this, you know, open source hardware thing to the Pearson individual. They asked him, uh, who's a big proponent of Power9, what laptop are you using? And he's like, well, uh, I, I don't use a laptop right now because there's nothing in there that's open source, which case in point, that's probably why there's no way to really properly do it yet. So if you don't run a laptop, uh, most people aren't going to just give up their mobility uh, for this. But the point here to me is System76 is going in the right direction. They're building in core boot. They're going to build from here. And as the hardware starts, options become available for open source. I assume with them building this in here that they'll become more and more open source as well. 
Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, Ryan. I think this is, it's not a revolutionary step. It's an evolutionary step to get to where we want to see with that open source hardware. Exactly. And that's really the key. And I think some people miss that level of commitment that System76 is really giving by doing this. Yeah. And ex and also, I'm pretty sure the Intel management engine is disabled by default in this particular setup. Um, I know I know it's possible to do that. So just by having that doesn't mean you're automatically having to deal with the binary blobs there. I'm pretty sure that they said that they're going to uh, that they have it disabled, but uh, it is definitely possible to do so. And they uh, said that, and I'm pretty sure that they're also saying that they're going to be from you know this for this moment forward that they're going to keep core boot in at least those particular lines of laptops, and they're going to be you know probably working on doing other lines as well. But I think this right. is great, and it's exactly the same like what Matt was saying is the it's an evolutionary standpoint because like they you have to take steps in order to get to that point where if you know if if no one takes the initial step there it'll it'll always stay as a closed source thing so the fact that you know there's multiple companies that are now focusing on doing that sort of thing is important because you know at some point in the future we might get to that open source hardware completely but at the moment we have to deal with what we can right now so baby steps yeah so this week for our software spotlight is xmind now xmind describes itself as a full-featured mind mapping and brainstorming tool. No, this is not Google getting into your data and figuring out uh, how your brain works. This is a tool where you get to go in and generate ideas, help you inspire creativity, and bring you efficiency in your work and your life. Uh, it's available as a flat pack, so you don't have to do anything special uh, or any voodoo in the terminal to get this running. Um, so this can be used for writing a story, designing new software, or launching a business idea. This tool really is there to help you map out and organize all the steps that you need to take or all the steps within the processes so that you can see it there, figure out where issues might be, um, organize yourself. It comes with nice templates. It has a fantastic tutorial system that you can run through when you go there. So really, really cool tool out there to check out if you've never used a brainstorming tool. Um, you might want to check it out because it can help you with organization and it can also kind of take you from the beginning steps all the way to the end of your process. For instance, System76 may very well use a brainstorming tool to say, here's how we get from proprietary hardware all the way to completely open source. Here's all the steps that we need to take out and they could map that out in a tool like XMind. This week, our tips and tricks is you've heard me talk about Sailfish OS. You've heard me give the the, the in-depth rundown on the Ask Noah show. But the problem is, if you're a user here in the United States of America, it is a uphill battle both directions to try to get Sailfish OS to run on a device. And there's a lot of different steps that you have to, to, to jump through and a lot of different hoops. And I got bit because I tried to set up a couple of more Sailfish OS devices and found that the model, the specific model of phone that you have to use uh, is that there are only very specific ones and they have to be running very specific versions of Android. And if not, you have to roll the versions of Android back. Now, you can dig through, and uh, I want to be clear, Jala does a very good job of having all of the documentation available if you're willing to dig for it. But it, you kind of have to bounce back and forth. You have to go to one guide and you have to figure out how to lock it. Then you got to go to another one and roll the... It just, it's a process, right? And it can take a couple of hours. And so what we've done is we've condensed down for the Destination Linux audience a simple step-by-step -step guide on exactly how you can get Sailfish OS running on the least expensive nice. device 
uh, that you can purchase right here in the United States. You can purchase them off of eBay. I found them as low as $40. I've paid as much as $150 if you want to get a brand new one in the box and all of that. But you can just walk through. I timed the process last night. It took me about 17 minutes from the time I started, and it's just monkey see, monkey do. You don't have to understand what you're doing. You don't have to understand ADB unlocking. You don't have to understand any of that. Just fall, point and click, point and click. The only caveat to this, and I hate to do this to you, but the only caveat with this is in if you have, if you purchase a device, and the guide has this all in there, if you purchase a device that has Android 9, you have to roll back to Android 8, as I previously mentioned. Now, the only tool that Sony gives you to do that runs on Windows. However, you can run it inside of a VM. So as long as you're willing to be a full dual booter like Michael and roll from Windows <laughs> or Android 9 back to Android 8, the rest of the entire process could be done on Linux and it works flawlessly. So we'll have that guide available for you in the show notes. Make sure to go to uh, destinationlinux.network. I'm sure there'll be a form post as well where we'll have it all outlined there and we can continue to have a discussion about it. Yep. Very nice. And what do I do with my iPhone? How do I get that well, see, Brian, the uh, issue, the iPhone, I'm currently working on a guide for okay. the iPhone to get that to run a free and open source software. We've just run into a small little snag, and that is that your iPhone is a piece of junk owned by Apple. You don't actually own it. <laughs> what? But at some My point, iPhone Apple, has a Linux sticker on it, so that can't. Yeah, it might have a Linux sticker on it, but Apple still owns that device. You can't install Squat on it. Oh, oh darn. Oh, well. Good to know. A big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. We love our patrons. So I just want to give a special shout out to all of our patrons for your support. All of those who've joined us today. Thank you so much. And Dark One. I mean, one of the perks you get for that dollar you spent, Dark One, or more. Uh, I think you actually give more. But one of the perks that you get as becoming a patron is you get to randomly be selected out of the audience to join the show and have to host with us with literally no preparation at all. I mean, that's fantastic, don't you think? So many words I could say to this, Ryan, but yes, it is 100% fantastic. Uh, and it's a great way to support the show and the content that you guys do. Become a part of the Destination Linux community by going to destinationlinux.network and joining the forums and see our new mobile server. We have Linux for everyone. We have Das Geek. We have This Week in Linux. We have the Ask Noah show. We have Tux Digital. We have Zebedee Boss. And a bunch of new content is coming in less than a week. That's the deal and extent that Ryan was talking about earlier. And so uh, so this is uh, this is going to be a really fantastic community and all of the all the, the ground zero for all of this happens at destinationlinux.network. So if you want to learn about this week in Linux, if you want to learn about you know, Linux for everyone, if you want to learn about any of the shows that you think are the best show, in fact you should go on the forum and fight for the show that you think is the best show. That's what you should do. You should go voice your opinion and you should talk about how this Week in Linux is so much better than that Ask Noah show guy. You should go do that, and you should do that on DestinationLinux.network. And you know what's great about doing that on that, sh on that site? We're going to fight with you because we're on there. We're on the Mumble server. We're on the network. Farm. There's, a, there's a million ways to get in contact with us. And honestly, guys, if you really want to take your journey of Linux to the next level, it goes beyond just listening to a podcast. It, goes, it, 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 it requires getting involved. It requires doing something. But the good news about that is you're going to have a built-in collection of friends. It's kind of like at school where you sat down in a classroom. There's a bunch of people you had to work with. But this time, they all have a shared interest. And that shared interest is Linux. So go to Destination Linux and become a part of the community today. We invite you to do that. Please get back to us and let us know what you think or ask any burning questions via numerous methods. You can email at comments at destinationlinux.org, our Telegram group, Discord, Twitter, Mastodon. Other ways you can find us are on our website at destinationlinux.org. 
slash contact. Please keep the uh, comments and questions coming. We love to read them and hear the ways we might be able to improve the show. Finally, don't forget to join our Mumble server, chat with the community, set up gaming sessions, and of course, enjoy networking with all these fine folks here and the community. If you want more more content, the fun doesn't stop here. We also have our own channels you can check out. You can go to uh, youtube.com slash dosgeek to check out Ryan's content where he fills your brains <laughs> on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can check out Zeb at youtube.com slash Boss. You can find him playing games on his YouTube gaming channel. And you can also check out my content for uh, the This Week in Linux, the Linux weekly Linux GNU's podcast at tuxdigital.com and also some other Linux-related content. You can check out Noah's show, the Ask Noah show. At, but it's a weekly talk radio show at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. You can join him, and he'll answer questions or your Linux and tech questions. You can also be sure to remember to go to Wendell's. Uh, thanks again for Wendell to coming on the show. And you can check out his content by going to level1techs.com. And you can check out his YouTube channels with uh, Level 1 Tech and Level 1 uh, Linux. We also want to give a special shout-out to uh, Matthew for hanging out with us and doing this show last minute. Now, we would send you to his YouTube channel, but it's not always the friendliest. So we'll have a link to it in our show notes <laughs> if, you're, if you're not easily offended by uh, content there. So, But fantastic Linux-based content and reviews and stuff there. Uh, but not necessarily family-friendly. So we'll leave that in the show notes. But thank you, Matthew, for hanging out with us. Always appreciate it, guys. So be sure to share the show on social media and also remember to like that smash button. And everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Fran says, yeah. I should say, no. Uh, yeah. No. Nay. <laughs> What's <laughs> happening right now? What? Nay. Yeah. We're saying goodbye, Michael. Say goodbye to the fans. Say bye, yeah. Internet. Yeah. See you next week. I mean, bye-bye. <laughs> you know, he doesn't even care about the fans, Noah. Have you, have you, have you noticed that? My gosh, all these people are trying to say goodbye to him. He's just hanging out there. He What's doesn't going even on? care. What are we doing? What are right you now? saying? <laughs> Treat them like trash. It's like Sesame know? Street. They say goodbye. See you next week. That's what we're saying. But goodbye. You, you don't even say, say you goodbye. You were saying nay as in no. Like, what is that? Yeah. Well, he said, Ryan, when you say Das Geek, he's like, yeah. And I don't have anything to say when you say ask Noah. So I was thinking I should be like, no. You. Nay. Ugh. Okay, Okay, so yeah, thanks for coming to the show, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye.